Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. We invite you to follow us on Twitter, at MacArthur1880, or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. We are here with Dr. Conrad Crane, a former colonel in the U.S. Army, West Point. Yep, West yeah. Point, class 74. Class of 74. And he is now the uh, Chief of Historical Services at this U.S. Army Education and Heritage Command in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. That's actually U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. And center, sorry, very much. Yeah. Now, a um, few years ago, you did your book, Air Power in Korea. And, uh, well, American Air Power Strategy in Korea in 1950-1953. And so we wanted to talk about some of these instances of uh, the Korean War, and especially that feeds so much in with MacArthur and the Chinese coming in. Um, and so when we get to the 1950 time frame, and MacArthur's forces are pushing towards the Yalu, uh, right after the Chinese have come in on the Chongchon River with Peng Duai's um, mm-hmm. army group that comes in. MacArthur starts calling for the bombing of those uh, Yalu bridges in November. There's been a lot of talk that they were just about to take off and then the order was countermanded by Washington. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I don't know how close it came, but I know that, that MacArthur... I mean, there's this myth out there that somehow that we were surprised. We didn't expect that, that there were so many Chinese in Manchuria or that they could get in. MacArthur was aware of how many troops were in Manchuria, but he was also promised by George Stratemeyer, his, his air commander, that, that the Air Force could keep them out. Uh, MacArthur had been, of course, had George Kenny in World War II and had learned to really trust his air commander. George Stratemeyer had been very good up to November 1950, doing what MacArthur wanted. When Stratemeyer said he could keep the Chinese out, MacArthur believed them. Initially, the push is to try to take out the Yalu bridges, and missions were set up to do that, but, but the, the restrictions came in from Washington were very concerned about an incident uh, that would, might bring in the, the, the Communist forces. Basically, just told them you could, you could bomb the bridges, but you could only bomb the, the southern half, which, as anybody knows in that time frame, it, it's impossible just to bomb half a bridge which basically was the same as saying we couldn't bomb them at all. Uh, MacArthur got very frustrated with that. And the alternative that, that Stratemeyer gave him is Stratemeyer told him that if we can't take out the bridges and keep them out that way, what I can do is I can create a fire, I'm going to firebomb across, the, uh, the, the, across North Korea and create a dead zone uh, that the Chinese can't get through. And, and what basically MacArthur will give permission to Stratemeyer to start firebombing North Korean cities to try to create this zone uh, to keep the Chinese out. And Stratemeyer says, if you give me that, you give me the ability to do that, I can keep the Chinese back. MacArthur believes him. So, so in, again, when, you, when we talk about MacArthur and his drive north to Diablo, how reckless it was. Again, his air commander had told him, that if you give me free reign to, to create this, this dead zone, then I can keep the Chinese back. Now, that has to come very quickly after the orders countermanded not to bomb those bridges. Because the, that day before, MacArthur says, I face destruction. And almost the next day, he's like, it doesn't matter. I'm go-. So that's all Stratemeyer, you think, telling him. Well, he's, I think 7 November is the first day they start firebombing the cities. And, they, and, and, and so he, Stratemeyer is telling him that I can hold them back. Mm-hmm. And MacArthur actually sends a message back to Washington and says that. My yeah. air commander has told me that he can... Uh, with this this concentrated air campaign that he can keep the Chinese back and there and that he sends that to Washington as he continues his drive north to, to, I, I think to assuage any fears they had in Washington about the concerns about the Chinese intervention 
Again, he's, t he's going by what Stratemeyer has told him. Did they ever try to bomb those half of the bridges or anything? No, they, they, they had a few half-hearted missions up there, but again, it's, it's the, one of the big problems at this time is the MiGs have come in. Right. So it, Almost it, on the same day, right? The 1st of November. 1st of November 1950 is when the MiGs show up. Almost exactly the time the same that the, this, this issue comes up. And the problem is the MiGs make it actually a moot point because they, they basically create an impenetrable zone over that part of North Korea, which has two impacts. Number one, you're not going to get to the bridges to bomb them. Number two, you also have no intelligence along that whole Yalu River line where the Chinese are coming across. So you can't check and see if they're coming. Right. Uh, you, you, so you, you're blinded. So the MiGs not only pr protect the bridges, they blind the air intelligence, which is very important at that point, about the, whether the Chinese are coming in or not. So, it, so in many ways, or in or not. So basically, uh, MacArthur is in many ways blinded by the appearance of the MiGs in 1 November 50. Now, is, and this is when he starts asking for the hot pursuit into China, Manchuria? When the MiGs start coming across, obviously there's some concern about trying to counteract them. And, and the MiGs, what the, you know, the, what the MiGs do is they, they will mass across the Yalu and dash over the Yalu to attack American aircraft and then dash back across the Yalu into this safe zone. And, and it's very frustrating to MacArthur and his airmen who want to exercise pursuit. And of course, at that point, because of the United Nations leadership and the United States leadership is so nervous about expanding the war, they won't let him do it, which gives that, I mean, it's, it's, it, it makes the enemy almost invulnerable. I mean, you basically can you sit on the other side of the yellow and thumb their nose at the American airmen and then dash across, shoot up aircraft, and then fly back into China. It's very frustrating. Now, is the Washington top generals of the Air Force, are they pushing to support what they want to do in Korea? Or are they as well saying, no, we can't do that because it'll bring in the Russians? Or I, I don't really know exactly what General Vandenberg is okay. saying at this point, but I know that uh, the, the traffic back and forth from Washington to the theater is very restrictive on mm -hmm. what they can do. I mean, it's ironic, by, by the time you get to 1953, the, the Sabre jockeys have kind of taken it into their own hands, and they're flying across the Yalu to shoot down MiGs without orders, really, uh, kind of on their own. That, that becomes a widespread problem by 1953, but they're not doing that in 1950. Now, are these Chinese pilots? They start to find... Evidence very early. These are Russian pilots. Russian pilots. They they can they can they they can hear the, the communications and it's in Russian. Really. Uh, there are, uh, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, that early on that these are Russian pilots. Of course, we know now they were. They're very the, the very best Russian pilots flying out of Manchuria. But it's 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 kind of like a one of those secrets nobody wants to talk about. I mean, they actually have an, an example where they shoot down a. An aircraft, a, a two-engine aircraft, and they find a Russian body in there. Then that's not somebody anybody wants to talk about either. So it's it's there's a there's there's kind of a uh, you can kind of sweep the problem under the rug. Uh, the Russian, you know, you don't want to really expand the war, so you kind of ignore the fact that Russians are in it. When it was became very evident by you know, later part of November 1950 that, that those were Russian pilots up there. Now, does it, is it not confirmed until they opened those archives in Russia in the 80s that, that they were actually doing this, was it, or was this all just supposition? But they say they captured a pilot. Well, they didn't they, capture a pilot. They found they, a dead pilot. They found it, yeah. and, and he, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a pilot, it was a body. They found okay. a, a Russian okay. pilot. could have been just an advisor or something else, right. but they knew their Russians were involved. It's not confirmed until the archives open up, and we have some people do research over there. But you know, talk to anybody who flew over there, and they, you know, the airmen on the scene knew they were flying against Russian pilots. They could mm -hmm. tell by the the quality of the pilots. They could tell by the, the the again, everybody listened to the traffic. 
Do the Chinese have any jet-capable pilots by this time? Or? Well, and, but not 1950. Really? Uh, not, the early pilots are Russian. Okay. But they're, now they're training, and eventually you're going to get North Korean pilots and Chinese pilots coming over. Okay. In fact, one of the, one of the complaints was from the, the American pilots is when the Russians eventually leave, and they leave by, I think, 1952, the Russians are gone, and you've got just Chinese North Korean pilots, and they're a lot more hesitant to come over the Yalu to challenge the Americans, which is one of the reasons that the American saber guys start going over the Yalu, because there's not enough... Not enough targets coming across the yellow for them to shoot at. Do you think these Russian guys are just wanting to test their metal against the Americans, and that's why they come across? Or well, that, actually, there's there's a, there are a couple there are a couple books written on this. There's a very good uh, dissertation by a guy named O'Neill from I think Florida State, where he talks. He actually went over and did research, and he talks about it. And it, it is the top Russian units, and they're out there, and they. They want to test themselves against the Americans. They want to see what tactics the Americans use. You know, they're trying to get a lot of intelligence out of this. That's one of the reasons why uh, Curtis LeMay wouldn't allow the SAC B-29s that were in Korea to use the normal SAC tactics because they didn't want the Russians to get any intelligence about the way we might do nuclear attacks against the Soviet Union. So the, the B-29s were not only very vulnerable to the MiGs, but they weren't allowed to use the normal tactics as LeMay didn't want them to give anything away wow. to the Russians. Wow. Because everybody knew what was going on. So LeMay is even like, this isn't the show yet. Let's wait no, till the show. No, LeMay, is, he's holding back. I mean, it was very frustrating to his guys because he's, you know, they wanted to do kind of the things they were going to do for the big show. No, no, no. You can't. Don't show the Russians any of our tactics. Mm. That's one of the reasons that there, there's, there, there are a lot of people in SAC and other places didn't want to use any nuclear weapons against North Korea because they said, we'll be just giving away intelligence for the Russians. You know, North Korea is small potatoes. The, the Soviet Union is the big target. And if we... Use a nuke or two against North Korea. We're giving away important intelligence that the are there people Russian in the Air Force, Force that want to use a nuke or two? Well, it's an interesting debate. There are a number of studies done by the Joint Staff beginning in 1950, looking at the use of nuclear weapons. I mean, there are a few people in the Air Force that are talking about dropping irradiated material to create this barrier of, of, of uh, nuclear material, like the Cobalt the Zone. MacArthur talks about. Yeah, there there, there were some some some. Uh, some Air Force people talking about that, but generally the the conclusion of the studies is that we shouldn't resort to nuclear weapons unless it's a last resort to save us as we're being pushed out of Pusan. Again, there's a lot of reasons for it. North Korea is a tough place to use nukes because of the terrain. You're going to restrict your uh, explosions. You'd have to have a pretty good, maybe a field army to hit, and they're pretty good at dispersing. They actually do some tests with Operation Hudson Harbor to find out if they can hit targets, and the problem is you've got to wait for approval by the president, and the planes are flying from Guam. By the time you get there, the targets have usually dispersed. Uh, and again, there's this fear that if we use a couple atomic weapons, the Russians will see how, what our tactics are and what happens, and that'll, that'll make it easier for them to counter us when we actually attack for the big one right. later on. When the Chinese come in, MacArthur wants to bomb Manchuria, but he doesn't ask for nukes. No, that, that's one of the great myths, that they, they have this division of MacArthur asking for nuclear weapons to, when the Chinese come in. And in reality, what happened is Joe Collins is sent over an investigating trip. Uh, the Army had the theater responsibility for the Joint Chiefs, and Joe Collins comes over, and he asks MacArthur about the use of nuclear weapons. And MacArthur gives him, as if I had nuclear weapons, here's what I would do. But this was not a communication initiated by MacArthur, this was an answer to a query that he got from... General G Bolt, right. Well, yeah, yeah from General yeah. Collins, General Bolt, who were over there asking him. So this is, he's responding to a question, he's not initiating the right. question. Does, well, when the, does he start asking immediately to, to bomb Manchuria, though? Because from the records of the MacArthur Memorial, we only have the, I think it's a, a January 
12 where he lists everything he wants to do. I mean, the requests start coming in very early about, you know, the Chinese are in here full bore. We need to be able to expand a target set. And, and it's restrictions remain very tight. Right. And there's still a concern that the Chinese are in, but the Soviet Union's not in, and but they come in if we expand it more. Again, I think there's there's no, no record of this, but my sense is because they already knew there were Russian pilots involved. Right. The question is if we expand, you know, if we start bombing across Manchuria, maybe we'll start killing Russians. So we don't, we don't really want to do that. So I think that's part of the concern as well, that, mm. that they don't want to initiate an incident that might make, make the war even bigger than it already was. Do you know how big of an air force the Soviets had out there at that time? They had a couple a couple air groups. Which there. equates to how many planes, you think? Cheapers, I'd have to think. Thousands yeah. or hundreds? No, it's hundreds. Hundreds. It's probably, I think they had like two air groups of 64, maybe 120 MiGs, mm -hmm. I think, initially. Uh, oh, I'd have to... I don't have it on the top of my head. I might be able to prefer back my book to find that. So if they do start, if the Soviets do come in, are they, will they equal the, the amount of power the United States has? You the, 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 you know, the big issue, of course, is not just, you've got to understand the way that the air war gets fought over there. And, and part of it is where your airfields are. Uh, the, for, for a fight along the Alu, the, the Communist Air Force have a big advantage because their airfields are right there. The American airfields are down around Seoul, Kimpo, down in that area there. And by the time the, uh, the jets get up around the Alu, they've only got a few minutes of fuel mm. to fight up there. So the American time around the Alu is very short. Big advantage for the, for the Communists. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, one of the big successes for the, uh, in the war is the fact that MacArthur and his, and his successors could keep the communists from being able to extend their air force south. They never let them establish any airfields in North Korea or south of there, which means that they remain very much restricted along the Alu because they can't, mm -hmm. they don't have the range to go very south either. So it's a, you know, but that makes a big difference. You know, if you're at the end of your air range or you're not, which is an edge that the communists will have along the Alu the whole war because their right. airfields are right there. Now, there's, of course, there's going to be another flurry in April when the, the not only do the are there signs of the Russian fighters that are there, the MiGs, but there's also deployment of Russian jet bombers okay. into that area as well, which causes a real red flag in, in uh, all the intel circles and back in Washington and in, in, in the big flurry of fear in April that there's something big coming. Uh, now, is the Air Force getting the new pits ready? Well, the Pacific. The, because uh, of that, that's when they start moving the um, assets to Guam. There, there's a sense that, that we may need to be prepared to do something here. It's not only that the fact that there are uh, Russian bombers that they're deploying to Manchuria, but there's also signs of uh, submarines massing at Vladivostok, mm -hmm. and it looks. And then there's a Polish defector that talks about the big one is coming. I mean, there's all kinds of intelligence that the the big balloon may be ready to go up. And, and so there's a lot of concern in April. And, right around the time MacArthur is fired. Right around the time MacArthur is fired. And, and, I, not, and personally, I think those events are not related, but, I, but, but the, the firing does increase the, the sense of dread on the United Nations side. All these things are happening, and now we're changing command at the same time. We're vulnerable, we're trying to get set up. We've got all these signs of increased Soviet activity. What does this all mean? And so mm. everybody is geared up to watch and, and maybe even resort to a, 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 an atomic response if required. Now, after the war, after MacArthur's relief, uh, come the mid-50s, he starts to place a lot of blame on the Russian spies, uh, Philby, uh, 
uh, McLean, right. Burgess, do you, do, and what he said was they didn't have like day-to-day -day tactics, but like the Chinese knew we wouldn't bomb those areas. Do you believe that's true? Have you seen anything related to that? I've read some RAND studies and some other studies where they actually tried to examine what the Chinese were doing, and, and there was, I don't know about the high-level stuff, but, yeah. but, but I know at the lower levels the Chinese are being told that, that either that the Americans are not going to use atomic weapons, or that if they do, the damage won't be that bad. We can kind of get through it. They're, they're downplaying the effects as well as the intent. Uh, I don't know if that could have been motivated by some kind of spy information. Perhaps it could have, because the, the, the Chinese did seem pretty confident that we were not going to use atomic weapons against their troops in North Korea. How was the U.S. atomic stockpile at that time? In the early part of the war, numbers I've seen around maybe 100 bombs. Oh, that around. many. Wow, okay. But I mean, if you look at Op Plan 852, if you look at the end of the war, when we finally get frustrated and we did have a plan to... You know, there was a great sense in 50, by the summer of 53, when the, actually, if you read the minutes for the meetings after, the, when the armistice is being signed, there's still a sense with President Eisenhower and his, and his main uh, advisors that this is all a ruse, that this is, that they're basically, that we can't trust the communists, they're going to violate this. And, and in response to that, there's, a, there's Op Plan 8-52 is, is designed to go into effect, which is what is needed if we're going to have to expand the war. And that includes using between 480 and 600 atomic weapons on Manchuria and, and Russia. So by that time, we got a lot by, by early 53. I mean, and we've been cranking plan is that? Well, that, it actually is, is begun by Mark Clark. It's, Clark. Real, it's Mark Clark, who is, of course... You know, replaces Ridgeway as Far East commander, and his his plan Act Dash Fifty Two, which you know, it, it's a uh, it includes bringing in more force to the United States. It includes in, basically include it's a drive up to the narrow neck mm -hmm. across North Korea, but it includes a massive, like I said, atomic assault on Manchuria and, and Russia that would have been a bloodbath on both sides. I mean, it, it would have been would have wiped that area off the map. Well, also would have been deadly for them. You're talking flying B-29s against yeah, MiGs. Yeah. I mean, it would have been, I mean, remember the B-29s are blown out of the air by October 51 by the MiGs. They can't compete. So it would have been a, would have been a heavy loss on both sides. You would have had atomic bombs blowing up all over Manchuria. It would have been, Good my grief. God, it would have been Armageddon in many ways. But of course, it never, you know, it never happens. But yeah. that was the plan. That was Op Plan 8-52, which comes up in, in late 1952 and is discussed in early 1953, and especially once the, the, the peace talk seems to bog down. And there's great frustration, and, and, and there's a lot. And Clark and others are saying, "Look, if, if these peace talks aren't going to work, the only way we're going to finish this war is we're going to have to expand it." And 8-52 is the way to go. I think of that. Think of that. 500 nukes in Manchuria and China, Richmond, Russia. Holy crow! Well, we appreciate you talking with us today, and uh, thanks again. Yeah, well, always glad to do it. Yes, Thank sir. you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.